Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The basketball world and the country are navigating many complicated issues right now, from the COVID-19 pandemic to issues of racial justice to a presidential election in just over two months and a work stoppage by NBA players. This week, we'll attempt to make sense of everything with two special guests. But first, Darlene, please get us started. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thank you for joining the show. Monica McNutt and King McClure are colleagues of mine at Pure Hoops Media. They co-host the Buckets, Boards, and Blocks podcast. They're also both former Division I basketball players. Monica was a Georgetown Hoya, and King is, well, the pride of Dallas and a Baylor Bear. Uh, Both are also basketball analysts for ESPN and other platforms. Monica and King are both African-Americans. I'm Caucasian. I don't know if you knew that or not. And you've witnessed... (laughs) We've all witnessed the events of these past few months, and I, you know, I thank them for joining the show this week. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Mike. Always happy to join you. As happy well, to be, happy to be on the show for sure. Yeah, yeah. This is your this is your inaugural appearance, King. I, I could feel the nervousness in your voice. <laughs> nah, not 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 at all. I'm just happy <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Um, I, I was just going through the last week, and it's funny. We had, on my show last week, I had Todd McCulloch. And anybody who knows Todd McCulloch means he's a little bit of a goofball. He's got a pinball collection, talks about being in scary movies. And we brought him on purposely because we wanted to lighten up the program because everything had been so serious. Well, you don't even get a week respite now before life intervenes in sports. And um, I just, off the top, King, uh, general thoughts about this past week and what the players have done um, and essentially how the NBA players have once again shown the light to the rest of society and sports who's followed suit. Yeah, I definitely love what the NBA has done. I think the NBA players came together and realized that it was bigger than basketball. I mean, they're basketball players, but they're black men first and foremost. You know, you're a black man when you go to sleep, when you wake up. You're only a basketball player when you put the jersey on, go to practice or go to the games. So they realized that life was more than just playing a sport. And they definitely raised awareness and uh, shed light on some things that a lot of people are not taking as serious as they should. One of the things, Monica, that I like about what's happened the past week, and I always said this, even when, you remember when Carmelo Anthony, LeBron, Chris Paul, and those guys got up at the ESPYs? And, and had this great message of uh, social justice and really looking at things several years ago. And all I thought was, why isn't Aaron Rodgers up there? Why isn't Tom Brady up there? I feel like 
Yeah. If you really want to make a statement, like some of your some of your white brothers, your your colleagues, your people that you go to battle with on the field on the court, also have to have your back off the field and off the court. And I feel like that's happened this week, and for the most part, the last few months since the killing of George Floyd. But I, I mean, I know this is stereotypical, and we all and I I always dog them because I don't know enough about the sport. But I was like, the NHL is getting involved in this. Like they're in Canada. And I really, I don't know, I just, I was pretty, you know, as a person who's, who's, who wants to be an ally, it's just so good to see other professional athletes who happen to be white that are becoming allies. Let me just admit that when I saw the NHL statement led by one of the very few black players in the league, and I'm forgetting that I did not remember his name and immediately follow him on Twitter and Instagram because that brother was handsome. I was like, oh, where did I get him from? <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, uh, I, I think what has been unique about 2020 and the videos and the responses is you can see the vitriol, the hatred, what is being excused by our country in terms of bad behavior from those tasked with protecting us. And two, in the responses, I think people are finally starting to hear the heart of Black folks. Doc Rivers, former NBA player, accomplished coach, champion, the accolades go on and on. To sit at a podium and be brought to tears because of the pain that he has witnessed, that he has lived through, folks know that he's married to a white woman and has been tormented because of that, um, but to have Doc Rivers, to have Troy Vincent, to have Chris Webber in near tears, these people who are synonymous with success at a high level in sports, can you watch a person that you don't know cry and not get emotional? Yeah. And so I think we are seeing layers of this thing that are striking people at their core differently. Because you're right, Charles Barkley says a lot of things I don't always necessarily agree, but when he says, White people, Tom Brady doesn't get asked about white people stuff. That's true. It, 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 there is truth to that. Um, and so King and I have talked about this on our pod and off camera. Like Now my task is not only to come at this from the place of my experience as a black woman in America, which is vital, which is gives me credentials, but also to be able to speak on the history, to give the numbers, to tell you significant dates, to give you quotes that are still relevant 50, 40 years later. Um, it's been really an interesting song and dance for me. And Mike, the last time I was on your pod, you heard me get emotional. And so yeah. for me, it's how do I move through this space so in a way that my emotion and my education can be heard to captivate an audience? Because I think there are already people who were in attendance of this week's RNC convention mm. who already have their minds made up. And so it's not those people that I'm concerned about. It's the people that truly love sport and love their athletes and have a heart and some compassion and ear to hear. King, when um, uh, when I watched the video, the first video I saw of Jacob Blake, and I like, I don't care what happened beforehand. I don't know how you shoot anyone, irrespective of their color in the back. I feel a visceral feeling, and this this is awful now. But um, you know, my my friend Sean Powell, who happens to be black, he used to say, you know, every time a brother does something on TV, oh no, the brother did it. Oh no, what are we gonna do? I'm, we're getting to the point where like. I think white people are going, oh no, the white brother, <laughs> the white brother. Like, that's how I feel. And that's how we should feel. It's like, uh, not that every, not white people want monolithic, black people want monolithic, but I can feel it one way. How, did, how does it, when you see that video, King, how does it, like, what's the visceral feeling that you get right off the bat? 
And the the feeling I get is no, not again, not not another one of my brothers, my, my African American brothers. Like this cannot keep happening. Mm-hmm. I think um, you know, it's getting to the point to where it's after you see George Floyd, after you see Jacob Blake, you're like, dang, what if that was me? Like, what if that was my brother? What if that was my nephew, my best friend? And what if we get pulled over by a cop and you know he doesn't like our response and we get shot like five times? I, I, it, it hits so close to home because the man wasn't doing anything wrong. It's one thing if he was doing something wrong, you know, but it, it, he he wasn't. So if I'm complying with the cop, I mean, he he walked away. Yes, he did. But that's still no justification for him being shot seven times. And then, also what, and then also, and also hit was his kids are in the car. What if my daughter is riding with me? Yeah. She's in the back seat and she's a cop pulling me over and, and treat me you know, the way that he was treated. That's why I hit so hard at the home. That's why I hit so close. And what blows my mind is that people, not all white people, white people are sitting up here justifying what cops did, saying that bringing up like Brian Erlacher, bringing up his past, what does his past have to do with him getting shot seven times, regardless of what he did? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not condoning his past, but what, regardless of what he did, that's wrong. Wrong well, is wrong. Exactly. And people are bringing to the forefront things that are irrelevant that don't even matter. And I think that that's the biggest thing right now is like, like why? Like, like why, if you cannot sit there and watch that video and not have a heart of compassion or heart of anger because you saw something wrong, I think at this point, you're really the problem, to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I just look at it, Monica, and I think to myself, um, yeah, you could have done 10 th- different things. You could have tried to physically restraining before he got to the car, tackled him, whatever. But, but the bottom line is, you know, for disobeying a police directive, no one deserves to be paralyzed. No one deserves to die. No one deserves to be shot. And, and I just look at it and... This part of me, completely, uh, you know, uh, apropos of nothing, I'm like, I'm looking at it thinking to myself, God, I'm tired of this snuff porn on video and I can't watch this stuff. It's just like desensitizing. And God forbid if my 10-year-old or my five-year-old comes across it, what am I going to tell them? And then the other part of me is like, if these videos didn't exist, if there was no video of George Floyd, if there was no video of the cop in Charlotte that shot the guy after he tased him, all the things that happened in this country, um, especially involving white, well, white victims too, but, but mostly involving white law enforcement and the black community, like, we don't know. They're, they're just another statistic, and we, we have to believe the narrative we hear from the police department, which now we know is pretty faulty. And so I like, for instance, uh, I know you got, you don't have, do you have kids yet, King? Yeah, I have a daughter. You have a, how old? She's two. She's two. So at what age, and, and Monica, you can answer this too. At what age, like I, I read a piece by Tom Thomas, a friend of mine who I covered with the Wizards and who, who I, to this day, I regret writing at one point. I go, hey, like, cause he was all into Def Jam poetry when that was big back in the day. And I'd be like, hey, Hey, enough with the Robert Frost uh, time. Start doing some Robert Parrish. And, and I went up to him the other day, or the last time I saw him, I said, do you remember that line? He goes, yeah. <laughs> and I go, I'm sorry, man. You were ahead of the game. Be like, I wish I would have listened to you then because you, your thoughts were so beyond basketball, and I didn't give you enough credit for that. But at any rate, we're good now. And he writes his piece in The Undefeated. I don't know if you saw it. 
but it's so the, the the conversations he has with his kids who are a little older than mine and how he has to go into you know if you ever do get pulled over by, by a policeman you need to do two things you need to put your hands on the steering wheel on 10 and 2 you need to do that he's having conversations that i, I can't imagine having with my children until they're much older but even then like I know now that my chil- my children, because of how they look, won't be treated the same when they get pulled over in this country. And it's just that's how it is. And that that to me is disturbing. What at what age, King, do you like tell your daughter these things? What, how do you explain to them? My my son's 10 and I'm starting to tell him he goes, Dad, Black Lives Matter. We gotta have a sign like that. I go, Yeah, we do. And you know why? And we have the conversation. But not like if if I was African American, I'm probably having that that discussion with my child at five. And or, yeah. or whoever's watching TV and going, why are, why isn't the NBA playing tonight? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think as soon as she can really um, understand and start comprehending, because right now you can just see as the growth from when she was a baby to now, like the small little things she's starting to grasp and gain the concept of. So I think by the time she's, I think about four or five, when she starts going to school, and let's say there's a white kid in her in her in her class who parents teach them something teach her something teach them something different you know you have to have those conversations as far as soon as they start going in public interacting with other kids because not every parent teaches their kids the same thing but i definitely think that's one of the first things i have to talk to her about is uh you know treating everybody equally and just because somebody's a different skin color uh than you i mean you can still be best friends when you can still love them doesn't really matter but you can never ever you know be, what's the word I'm looking for? Be ashamed of being black. You should always embrace your blackness mm. and never be ashamed of it, no matter where you are, who you're around, who you're talking to. And the cop conversations, of course, you get pulled over or you ever have any, not even just yeah. pulled over, any incident with a cop, always like, just listen. Just cause I, I, cause I care about you. I, I want you to live, see the next day, just listen, do whatever they tell you to do. It's not a matter of you being inferior to them. It's just a matter of we're seeing too many people die mm. in the hands of them. So just listen to whatever they say. Um, Monica, you're, you're an auntie now, aren't you? Um, I have a goddaughter. Oh, goddaughter. Okay. You, you have conversations with younger people at this point? Or, or is that something um, if they ask you a question, then you answer? Uh, my goddaughter, London, is nine. And we did have a conversation at the height of the George Floyd protests. And she, um, until last year, she went to KIPP charter schools here in D.C. Yep. So all of her classmates were black. She had some white teachers. This past year, she moved with her dad and she went out to the suburbs of Maryland, Charles County. So now she has a much more diverse space. And I asked her, you know, Linda, what do you think about all that's going on? Um, And she said, it's sad. And I said, do you know why George Floyd was treated that way? And she said, because he's Black and some people don't like Black people. Um, And my heart kind of sank because it it forced me to think of when I had those conversations with my parents. And one of the things that I look at as a privilege in my life is that I went to an all-Black private Christian school from kindergarten to ninth grade. And I grew up in Prince George's County where black affluence is around every corner, right? 
So for me, I had a friend tell me, Andre Jones, who I believe you know, Mike Wise, when I moved to Florida to take a sports job, he said, oh, you're going to find out you're black. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I went to a predominantly white high school. Like, I went to Georgetown, got a degree from Maryland. Like, I deal with white people all the time. Mm -hmm. But he was right. Um, This area is so unique. And so my upbringing, I don't remember a specific conversation. I just remember knowing. By the time I got to the Holy Cross in 10th grade and was around all white girls, I remember my mom saying, white people are not better. They're just different. And they have more resources. And the plethora of problems that my teammates or that teammates, my classmates had at that school, my sister and I would look at each other and be like, they're not smarter or better than us. They got money to throw at their problems. And, and that was the reality. Um, because all through my upbringing, I was esteemed as a black person. I was celebrated as a black person. Black history was, was all nine months that I was in school because my teachers were black. Our principal mm-hmm. was black. My dentist was black. Um, my world was black professionals. And so I was fortunate that my pride and who I am comes from a place of great glory and esteem. And, and when it is challenged, I'm able to counter practically because I've seen it and I know what black people can do. Um, but also, quite frankly, we were taught the way that this country has treated black people, whether yeah. you're talking about maybe the civil rights movement or present day issues. And so um, the quote that has stuck with me through 2020 comes from Elaine Welter Roth, who is a judge on Project Runway, former editor of, um, I believe Teen Vogue, and she said, when you operate in spaces that were not necessarily created for you, that oftentimes is, is your activism. Your authenticity is your activism. Wow. That when is you, when you, can you repeat that? I love that. When you operate in spaces that weren't created for you. The quote is exist, but she says, when you exist in spaces that are not designed for you, your authenticity is your activism. Mm-hmm. And so for me, in the sports space that is male dominated, uh, the television space and the print space, you know, Mike is also white dominated largely, sure. um, using my platform and not shying away from these conversations and challenging thinking is something that I, um, take a lot of pride in even down to my hair. And I've talked to this to a bunch of talked about this with a bunch of folks, like this is me, this is who I am and you need to be comfortable with it and be able to hear me for it. So, um, it's a lot to tackle. I walk away from these conversations and we wrapped up our pod this week, King, like mm. what can lift the burden because these things are heavy right um and in a way you're encouraged that these athletes are using their platform in a way that we've never seen you're encouraged that mike you and so many others are willing to have these conversations uh mina kimes tweeted today a poll that suggested that more people seem to be in favor of the protests i don't know if that necessarily necessarily is going to translate to change in a meaningful way how quickly that will change um but i think if you just get caught up in the polarization of the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party, it can feel very doomsday. Yeah. But I think there's a large sect of people in the middle who are willing to learn and listen, right? And no, they may not put Black Lives Matter in the front of their yard. But if I can get them to acknowledge, hey, something's wrong, and there's a trend that it continues to happen to yeah. Black people, and on an American level, that's not right, we can begin to make steps forward. Yeah, I, it's, it's so crazy because every time... Um, Every time I turned on the RNC thing this week, and uh, Bruce hates when I get too political, but you know, it was like two different Americas almost. Completely. And, uh, and like, uh, you know, wait, wait a minute, I didn't know the Republican Party was was the um, was the party of diversity. Oh my God. <laughs> Who knew? Great. And the party, uh, you know, and the, and the party of uh, believing in science and and and, and healthcare, and you know, I was, I was like. 
and, and you know, and believing in the, the, the poorest of the poor needs to be lifted up. Oh, oh, who knew? Like, it's crazy to me. Like, I've never seen a, I've never seen a, a more flip, a, a flip of a thing to, and you know, it's like, a friend of mine, I won't say his name, who happens to be black, he, he was like, he, at one point he texted me and he goes, if I see another black person on the RNC convention, I'm going to go nuts. He goes, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to raise up a sign like black people for Trump is like lobsters for hot water. <laughs> I mean, you're Which is a little cruel, but, and, and, you know, it's like anybody can, anybody can vote for who they want, but, but I, I just don't like the revisionist history. And it's, I feel I, like, like you, so, can't, you can't erase what's happened in the last four years with four days. That's uh, my not at all, not at all. And I think to your point, I'm one who subscribes to not watching the videos either. I don't need yeah. to see another black body assassinated at the hands of law enforcement. And the RNC for me was a force, just to go and see. Like, I'm gonna go to the post and watch this four minute encapsulation that they yeah. created. And I literally walk away mind blown like, what America? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's one thing to see it from your perspective. There's another thing to obliterate facts. Shout out yeah. to Daniel Dale, who was my new favorite follow on Twitter for just fact checking. Yeah, the CNN guy, King. Have you seen that guy? Oh, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. He'll, he'll, he'll like they'll have this back and forth with all the Republicans and Democrat strategists, and they'll go, "All right, Dale, tell me, you know, you did some fact checking." And he goes, yeah, I counted 20 lies. And then he just goes down the list. Like, oh, and it's so fat. And he says it's so monotone and boring. You're like, oh, no, this guy can't be real. This guy, but that's all he does, man. And he just checks yeah. you. And he's even caught, he even caught a couple things at the DNC convention, but not like this stuff. I mean, it was just yeah. crazy. And so, I, you know, like, I'm, I'm the same way. Like, there's a middle ground there. People, you know, I, I always say, uh, and, maybe too much information, but I went to this men's support group where people took, talk about intimacy, relationship, feelings, all that kind of crap when I was going through a bad break, uh, engagement breakup once. And I'll never forget the one guy I connected with, I think he was more conservative than anybody in the room, but we had common values in that we would, you know, protect heaven and earth to you know, uh, be sitting, make our family safe. We, you know, we believe in the good angels of this country, but we also acknowledge that there's a lot of work that needs to be done and I just like that part of it, you can't, because we live in such a polarized world now, I look at Trump calling the NBA a political organization, like it's a better political organization than yours. Mm -hmm. Like it's got standing for the right things in life. And you know, I don't, I don't have everybody's back on everything in the NBA. I think they could have been more supportive toward the Hong Kong uh, protests and all that, but you know, and they have business interests, right? But the bottom line is, if you take what LeBron James has done with his Promise Foundation, if you take what, I mean, the, the, these people are putting their money behind their words in ways that we never have. And the fact that, like, Clay Travis, oh, God bless him. Oh, I, 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 God bless him. I, 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 hope he, I hope he gets somebody to help him at some point. Because here's a dude that came out and said, look, LeBron wanted to be so woke, and now he's so woke that it's going to cost him a championship. All the, the season's going to be boycotted. He was the one who walked out of the meeting. He, he showed more conviction than anybody. He was like, if I have to give one of the, my last chances to win an NBA championship and have more people compare me to Michael, um, if I have to do that because I believe steadfastly and what's happening in this country is wrong and needs to be fixed, I'm going to do it. Like, like in your face, Clay, that's all I got to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do. Hey, King, you, like you, I mean, Sorry, Monica, I, I just want to get King on this. Is there any point of the player's message where you go, okay, that's enough? Or why are you protesting? No, 
I, I get it 110% and I'm over here crying because I'm not really big in politics. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just because I'm a little younger, but <laughs> I'm right. just a little bit quiet. Um, no, but I, I, I completely get it. I mean, for them to even be willing to say, forget the season, it's bigger. I'm, I'm black. This is a bigger issue than us winning the championship. That's enough for me. I mean, that, that, that's what you call being woke. Right? That's really being woke. That's the real definition. Yeah. So um, I, I'm, I'm with it. I'm, I'm 100 110% in agreement, And I respect yeah. a lot of those guys. George Hill, LeBron James. I think for me personally, my respect level is like through the roof for those guys. George yeah. Hill for even being a catalyst to say, hey, but right before the game, let's not, let's not go out there. Well, and people, people forget that. And when Garrett Temple was on the program right before the season started with me, he was like, I go, are you, are you looking forward to this? And he goes, well, I don't know. And, and people forget that there was a lot of reservations of players going into that bubble in the first place. Like, wait a minute, we're going in this, you know, hermetically sealed uh, environment that's um, apart from the rest of society. And it's like, we're, we're playing in a gym where the gym's burning down around you and you don't even care. And I think a lot of them felt that way. And, and that's, to me, that what is what led to the uh, protests and the fact that they were going to boycott a couple games or at least postpone them. Because, you know, at some point, you can be in that hotel room forever. You're still turning on the TV and you're thinking, wow, I, could I be doing more out there than I could be inside? And, yeah. you know, and I, so, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I look maybe because my dad was whatever leftist social engineer trying to be Mr. White enlightenment and trying to teach me like, like I got all these pictures of Muhammad Ali and, and Tommy Smith and Jack on the back. Of my, like I love that era because it, it connects me to my own family a little bit. And I, and, and the whole time I've been in sports writing, every time I came across an athlete that like had something to say that was a little deeper than the game, I was like, yeah, when are Tiger and Michael going to do that? What are Tiger, you know, and now it's happening. And I'm like, I'm in habit because I think that, you know, anybody that it doesn't matter if you're a president, if it doesn't matter if you're a, a big time player, the fact that you're using your platform for better things than just your own personal wealth, that to me is like, that's courage. You know, I mean, you're standing, you're putting your pocketbook and people forget too, like uh, Jared Kushner saying, oh, these guys, it's easy for them to take a night off. You know what, Jared Kushner? You're going to work till you're 70 in your chosen profession because of whatever. You, you were born on third base and you never have to take a damn foot off. But, mm -hmm. but secondly, there's a finite number of earning years for players. You know, I mean, it probably kills you, King. Like, you're at you're a Baylor, a Division I program. You're at that line where you could go to the next level. You could probably play in Europe for a while. Then you got to decide whether your career is like – People would give their – I would give my right arm to play one possession in the NBA, and I haven't played well for 30 years. And so I guess what I'm saying is, like, people forget, like, the, the, the economic sacrifice made by got these guys. And, and, the, and the chance that they're going to get blackballed, too. Like, oh, we don't want the demonstrator on our team. Uh-oh. He's going to go, you know, yeah, yeah, we can act enlighten his owners, but we don't want anybody messing with our locker room because we can't have people not playing. That's our, that's our pocketbook. Well, that was the that was the most uh, silly rant I ever had. Go ahead, you guys take it away. I think I, 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 so. Here's the thing for me, wise and, yeah. and like, I get annoyed at the oh, you're so fortunate that you can take time off because you make so much money thing. First of all, 
One, and King, you've talked about this. There's no guarantee that those players, just because of the type of money that they make, that, that they are in good financial standing, right? And then even if they are, you could, it's easy to suggest that the responsibilities and financial uh, responsibilities that they have in their life correlate to the type of money that they make, right? Like it's easy for all of us to sit and say, oh, you're wealthy, you're rich. Like it's easy for you to take a stance. Even if you're going to take that approach, the stance then you could argue is not per se for them in particular, right? Their socioeconomic class would in theory allow a little bit of grace, but as we've seen with Sterling Brown, Dabo Cephalosha, John Henson, that's not the case either. So it would seem to me that you would commend them that much more for taking a stance for something that still affects them, but probably doesn't affect them the way that it would affect the average Black American, right? So to me, that's even more admirable. Second, it's not our place to get in their pockets, right? Like the, my stance on this entire bubble has been total wellness. I don't think people understand the toll and the sacrifice that they're making to be in this bubble while all of these things are swirling. I don't know about you guys, but every time a video pops up, the first thing I want to do is hug people that I love. Like just check on the people that I love. Mm -hmm. And they are literally away from those people. And so this thing, again, we have to be, bear in mind that this is the culmination of so many events and creating the perfect storm. If this had been a regular NBA season, do I see players walking away from games? Uh, I'm not sure. But because of all that's happening, which is why from the jump, I can mm. understand why so many people were so irate about Kyrie's suggestion. Whether you agree or disagree, to me, this suggestion always had weight and creed from the very beginning. Um, but the thing is, and I love what Zora Stevenson, a friend of our product, kept, kept said on, as things broke down on Wednesday or unfolded on Wednesday. What are you doing? Right mm -hmm. now, turning the page, the NBA has decided that they're going to resume. There's a sect that is upset with them, so on and so forth. My question continues to be, what are you doing? No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on every level on that. And I also think that, you know, I, I always kill sports center, um, especially that I don't work for ESPN anymore. It's easy. <laughs> no one's going to give me an email like, why do you, that's your colleague. But I'm like, you know, this top 10 crap and oh, the worst of the worst. I'm so done with some of these highlights. And, I, and not that I need the whole thing to be social justice, but don't ignore what's going on. I was so proud of the people I worked with last night uh, at ESPN. They, they put on a show, especially the late show with everything, the highlights with Neil Everett and um, Stan Brett. And Stan Brett, yeah, and, and the whole thing. I mean, the whole, the whole thing, I was, the whole thing, it just went through it. And I was like, man, you know, Monica, you're very, you're really close to a lot of the WNBA players. You know, the players have been politically active for many years, people forget, starting with Minnesota Lynx players the, um, uh, and the reaction to the killing of Philando Castile back in 2016. And mm -hmm. this week, the Mystics wore T-shirts that spelled out Jacob Blake's name with seven sy symbolic bullet holes on the back. Future Hall of Famer Maya Moore actually stopped playing because of her crusade to clear the name of Jonathan Irons, Irons, who was wrongfully convicted of a crime. You know, leadership like this has to be really inspirational to you. I mean, just I, seeing them locking arms yesterday, I got, I got emotional because I knew some of those women. A hundred percent. I mean, I texted with my teammate earlier that morning just to check on her after the games have been canceled. And she's like, there's so much going on. So when they go on SportsCenter around in the noon hour, I believe, and the whole league is unified together, I'm like, oh, this is what she meant that was happening. But again, like, Black women are just amazing. No bias that I'm a Black woman, but we are. Um, and in so many ways, we've I'm been- not going to argue. <laughs> right. I mean, we've been at the forefront of these movements 
throughout history. Right. This morning as I'm reading and we're preparing to celebrate the March on Washington, Brittany Pacchietti Cunningham, who's been terrific since her rise in the Mike Brown killings um, from Ferguson, and she's one of the great thinkers and leaders that we get a chance to hear, see and hear from on television. But she pointed out, even down to the iconic We Have a Dream speech, Mahalia Jackson played a critical role in that even being delivered. Mm. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I kept saying to people last night that wanted to challenge me on respecting the players in terms of returning, we can't forget the place that money plays in this thing, right? Aretha Franklin toured opera, did her thing, huge star throughout the civil rights movement. She wasn't ever protesting, but she used her money to bail out activists repeatedly, mm -hmm. right? So we can't ignore the part that money plays in this and so mm -hmm. even if the nba decides to return those athletes are willing to put their dollars where they matter and as far as the WNBA is concerned quite honestly mike and i don't think that this is hyperbolic to say i don't know that the nba is where they are if the WNBA did not start laying the framework right. as a unified league right to have an entire team in the minnesota links where i can't breathe church following philando castile for them to catch hatred from the police department in Minnesota who decided they would no longer provide security at their games. Right. Well, Sasha Cloud here in DC to decide that she's not taking any other questions outside of dealing with the gun violence that was plaguing Southeast DC elementary schools and her teammates also not to take any other questions. Um, and call, calling out members of the mayor's office. Exactly. For, for their inaction. Exactly. I mean, uh, she was incredible. Um, I know that the WNBA platform is smaller by comparison, but the relationships that we're seeing between the two leagues are real and sincere. Kyrie offering a million dollars of his own money to help sustain WNBA players that are unable to play this year, right? Uh, Neka Agumake and the WNBA Social Council working closely with Chris Paul. I know for a fact Sid Colson and those women were on the same call that Michelle Obama joined the men on when we got to the restart in July. Um, so I think the WNBA has been silently about this business, as we say, mm. and they, while I don't know, I, Chris Paul and Kyrie, those guys are great. I think they would give credit, but subliminally, like women have always been at the forefront of this thing. And I don't know that we get such a grand stand without the WNBA starting to light the fire. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, um, there's, yeah, there's, a, this is like the mutual admiration society today. We can't even like go back and forth and chop it up over LeBron or Michael, who's the best? You know, let's have another super Superman versus Mighty Mouse argument. Um, I do know that one of the greatest players to come out of Dallas, Texas was King McClure. <laughs> and I am going to give him props that, well, he did not, he, he didn't go crazy with the numbers at Baylor. He significantly got better every year. His uh, minutes increased, his field goal percentage, he just became a better player. I'm thinking, I've been to, I've been to Waco, Texas. Mm. I know there's a lot of African-American athletes down there um, because of the school, but it still seems like a very white community. Was that real different from you going from Dallas to Waco? And did you ever have any experiences that really made you think ill of just, you know, God, what, why does this person feel this way about me? Or did you even deal with any of that down there? Yeah, so kind of like kind of the opposite of Monica from kindergarten through uh, ninth grade, no, kindergarten mm -hmm. to eighth grade. I grew up in private school, like, like white, predominantly white schools. So I was around white people uh, mm -hmm. my whole first you know, elementary school up until middle school. Then high school, I went to a predominantly black uh, high school. My parents just 
complete opposites threw me in the hood. <laughs> what was that about? What was that? They, they just decided, oh, you got to, you, you suburban soft ass white kids. We got to, we got to get you tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that's what it, I was too soft. Like my, 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 my pop said it just like that. Like, look, you, you a little too soft for me. Like we're going to toughen you up a little bit. Threw me to the middle of the hood. And uh, it was like complete culture shock. And I mean, growing up, that's why I was so, it's seeing these times right now is, it's kind of hard. Like, it's kind of different for me because growing up, I never really experienced racism like that. Mm-hmm. Like I never really saw it because I was around white people. So the white people so that So you I got knew, it right. So, okay, all right. So you're, you're right. They're, the white people that I knew, they weren't like, they weren't racist. They always yeah. accepted me, embraced me. And if they were, I didn't see it because I was so young. But I went to, from private school up until then, in the hood. Then I went from that to Baylor. And then that's all white, except the athletes. <laughs> so that's another complete culture shock. And, you know, I've had a few experiences, um, just like small things, like uh, not being led into parties because, you know, we're black. And um, In college? Yeah, in co- which is crazy. You would think that they want the basketball players there. Right. I pull up. They let my my, my roommate, Jake Lindsay, who who's a white, a white, uh, white basketball player, they let him. Yeah. He's already in the party. And we're sitting outside. It's me and a Hispanic, one of our managers, and another player. And um, they're not they're saying we, you know, we had wristbands for the party and everything because one of their other dudes let us get wristbands because they wanted us there. So I'm like, all right, cool. So they're letting people in, letting other white people in, but they're telling me, you know, we're over capacity. We we can't let you in. I'm like, bro, but you're sitting there letting other people in. And they, like, I'm talking about like 10, 20, 30, yeah. 40 people walking in. And I'm sitting there watching this. I'm like, bro, call it what it is. Like, this is racist. Like, you don't want me in there because I'm black. And there's right. no party. And he was like, no, it's not like that. He's like, bro, just leave. I was like, bro, I mean, me, I'm I'm a little, I'm not crazy and nothing like that, but I, I, I'm about it. Like, if it, if it come down to it, like, I'm, I'm going to call it for what it is. Oh, I can see I can see if some of the wrong guests came on with you guys. I can see you throwing down on behalf of Monica. <laughs> but so, I mean, that's, just how, that's how I am. Like... So I, and then I called Jake, my white teammate, and I told him what was going on. And Jake was ready. And I think that's when I that's when I gained the utmost respect for Jake. Is when mm. he came out there like, bro, y'all are being racist. Like, look, we're gonna handle this. And it was, yeah. I'm not gonna say what frat it was, but it was, you know, one of the right frats. Ah, Sigma Delta Chi. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was something close to that. I, I okay, think I, all right. Close to that. I never but, joined a frat. This is a completely another podcast. Like you but, told you could join a black frat. You could have been out. <laughs> well, see, that's what I'm saying. Like, I love that one that, I don't know, what, what, what that, um, road trip or something when 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 the goofy white dude like goes to the step show and he's doing all kinds of crap I'm like yeah that could be me but it wouldn't be I can't dance like but but the bottom line is it's a it's a different podcast but I'm always blown away by and not that every frat is but not every white frat is bad or whatever but you know you hear the skull and bones and they have all these crazy things up at Yale with Bush and all that like Ugh. and they have Geronimo's skull somewhere and they want it returned the the Apache one I'm like oh these people sick but the black fraternities man it's all good like it's everybody supporting each other it's a professional organization i'm sure it's that way with a lot of the white fraternities sure bruce bernstein was probably in one we don't even know about but nonetheless like you know you're getting spanked with a paddle all the time and beat up and and oh you weren't in fraternities okay i i didn't even want to they told me go rush i went rush what is that you know i'm not gonna go to a fraternity house 
all of a sudden you got to date a sorority girl and that's just crazy but then the black sororities and the black fraternities get together it's like oh we're cool everything's good life's good like nobody's mean to each other well mm, i gotta i gotta get you i gotta get you right a little bit though uh wise i will Was say that unconscious bias right there no 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 not at all i will say shout out to black fraternities though uh as Kamala Harris is an AKA, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to be all types of skiwing noises. Mamala, Mamala uh, Harris, I love um, But I will say, white folks rush, black folks cross. There are some things that get folks in trouble. Uh, same <laughs> concept. But I, the, to your point, though, Mike, and I think this is where we are in society, and I'm not saying that XYZ white fraternity needs to integrate. I, am I saying that? I might be saying that. But this is another example That's of a good idea. in terms of where we are, right? Like, King's experience... If King couldn't be led into the party, right, when black people are the life of the party, what then <laughs> are the overarching ideas and tenets that XYZ sorority holds, right? right? So XYZ sorority man goes on to be a banker or to be at the, at the front of a law forum or um, mm. to, to give out mortgage loans. Like what concepts are bouncing around in XYZ fraternity member's mind as he matriculates through life? And how is he... Um, continuing to perpetuate whatever those stigmas may be. So right. this becomes the issue of privilege and racism, right? Yeah. Whereas black fraternities, historically, probably same reason HBCUs were created was because black folks weren't allowed in white spaces, right? And so mm. at the heart of where the NBA players in terms of this process, I think that's what we're seeing. The NBA players have done all they can do. They have yeah. pushed this to the forefront. They have made people uncomfortable. We knew that there was going to be a next step as soon as kneeling became a unified demonstration, as soon as we got the okay yeah. to have Black Lives Matter and messages on our jersey, there had to be a next step. And so the strikes, boycott, the days of reflection, as Naka Gumuke called them, was the next step. But to me, this is now about the fraternity of the governors, who are largely white men outside of Michael Jordan. This is now about putting pressure on them. Use some of the cachet that you have to call Mark Lazary, the governor in Wisconsin, um, to call the DA and the people in the legislature of said cities and make something happen. Because as much as they may be fans and want to be courtside at XYZ games, they don't have the tangible relationships with these players. And the mm -hmm. players know that. But if Lazary says, listen, if y'all don't do something about this, I don't really love being in Milwaukee anyway. Do you not think that that money talks? And now I don't know if he's that about it, as we say, but if owners start putting pressure on the cities because they truly stand in this as allies, in the mud, feeling the pain of these players, then I think we see something. And so mm. to me, strike La Go ahead. players starting to pressure owners. I, you know, I, uh, I had Mark Lazary on the program. We went up to his office because uh, I oh, think, nice. and it was cool. He was, he was unbelievable. He was great, but we never got that deep. It was more about the league and where he came from and all that stuff. I, I got to have him on again and see, you know, and see, I, see I, if it, and see if he'll, you know, see what, see how, you know, see what he says, see what he sounds. I think that's a great point. Um, somebody said, you know, why should this be up to the players? And they, and they put a graphic out about how the owners made all this money. I would say that about some of the NBA owners. And, um, but I also say the Mark Cubans, the Genie Buses, um, shoot, uh, Ted Leonsis, like they're, they're with it. They, they get it. They, I mean, Genie Bus was in full support if they wanted to post and cancel the season. Mike, but do you, do you know how they vote? And, and I'm not, like, oh, you mean like it should be transparent? I'm not. And, and so this is where it gets. Yeah. I'm not saying that you have to necessarily share. Like, 
Yeah. America is a capitalist society, right? So Balmer, who's in a class of his own as far as the money, but if Lazary, Buss, Leonsis, even Dolan, like if they vote in a way that protects their money, on a surface level, I have some ability to process and accept yeah. that, right? But when we start talking about being allies and standing with your players, then can you continue to vote in a way that protects your money, but also oh. to oppress so many? Like, is that then acceptable? You're right. You're right. It's like, what, what can you really do to, I mean, that's, to be honest, like the reason why the Washington football name changed is because Money. Nike and Sponsor and FedEx said, uh-uh, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're going to have a stadium named after you if you don't take this slur that many Native Americans feel is slurred by off the name of your team. Mm -hmm. And that's when it happened. When the real money got involved, it wasn't about, you know, as I said recently, like people are starting to realize even corporations, if you go woke, it doesn't mean you're going to go broke anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can actually, like you that. could actually, you could actually be right about society and not alienate your, uh, your customer base all mm -hmm. the time. And if you are, well, they're going to, they're all white folks anyway, they're going to die off. <laughs> Gee, man, hey, right? well, I'm going to let this go before uh, I want to tell you about the time I, I almost didn't get into a party King. And I think you're, you're very much. Uh, you're, so, we got to know when we were covering the Knicks back in the day when I was with the New York Times and the beat writers, Frank Isola walks up to uh, Charles Oakley, who was one of the best dudes of all time. And he goes, Oh, oh when the all-star games in your city, um, you're supposed to take the riders around, you know, that's a tradition, right? And the all-star game was in Cleveland that year. It was, uh, it was like, talk, we're talking 23 years ago or something. And I was going, really? And of course that wasn't true. Oh, Isola just made it up, but he's like, all right, all right. And like, we're thinking, yeah, right. And then literally the day, like the day the All-Star game started, we get this call at our hotel room, me and I saw it, it's like, yo, be down at the Marriott Key at seven o'clock. My boy Ron's gonna pick you up in a limo. I'm like, really? We get to hang out with Oak during the All-Star game? Oh, so we get into this all, so we get in this big limo. There's his boy from high school's got a little limo business that he set him up with. And Oakley's in a pinstripe purple suit and a fedora, matching fedora. He looked like purple, he looked like the, the black Barney. It was hilarious. And all of a sudden, um, uh, um, Isola gets in the back of the limousine and he goes, he goes, damn, he goes, uh, oh, you're like the godfather here. And he goes, you down with the king, ain't you? And then he takes us to, he goes, I'm taking you, before I take you to my mom's house, I'm taking you to my, my little business, you know, East Side Supper Club. I'm like, you got a supper club? Yeah, he owns it. So we pull up, it's All-Star Weekend, right? There must have been 400 black people like the, the dressed to the nines, the biggest, you know, most affluent, uh, had it going on people in the African-American community in East Cleveland, all lined up at the supper club to get in because they know Michael Jordan showing up this weekend. They know everybody's showing up. And all of a sudden the limo pulls up and they're going nuts. And like, I get out like, what's up? It's the White Riders. Oh man, we did not get a good reception. We, they let us in. But they, we ruined their weekend. They thought it was going to be like, oh, damn, it's going to be Kobe. It's going to be Michael. Oakley's bringing the tent. And uh, I just, I still feel the pain of those people looking at us like, the sorry ass white riders are here? Why? Why are we even letting them in to eat? Uh, but uh, hey, man, uh, I wanted to end it on a funny note. I wanted to get picks for the season, but. You know what? I even think the players, after this is all said and done, whether whether the Bucks win it, whether the Clippers, whether the Lakers, whoever wins this, they're going to talk about Breonna Taylor on the victory stand. They're really? going to talk about this season is going to be dedicated to what we've all talked about now. 
I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see LeBron win another because I've gotten to know him peripherally and I like him. I'd love to see Milwaukee win one just for that city and what's going on with Kenosha right now. But it doesn't matter to me. It's like the, the season's already been made in my mind for what, for what this, this whole thing has stood for in some yeah. way. Don't you yeah. feel that? I would agree, and I'm, I'm going to let King get the final thought, but I had um, Natasha Cloud on. She joined us for WNBA Hoop Streams earlier this year, and I asked her straight up. She's one of the players that decided to sit out this season in order to focus on social justice. In fact, she's got a great op-ed in The Athletic today. Um, but I asked her, what's a win for the WNBA season? And she said straight up, for the women of that league, it is an arrest in the case of Breonna Taylor's murder, right? And so now the wins and losses that we're talking about are so far mm. – than basketball, yep. um, I would imagine that the NBA side has the same sort of answer in terms of defining what a winning season looks like this year. King? Yeah. I, I agree. I think that uh, it really doesn't matter, honestly, who wins or loses. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to compete and play hard, but if there's no justice for uh, Jacob Blake, there's no justice for Breonna Taylor, it's really a loss at the end of the day. But I, I would like to say that I, I commend you, Wise, for being that white person who's not afraid to <laughs> to have these conversations in front of people. I mean, oh, be, thank you, man. These white people love to have conversations with us in private, but for yes. you to be willing to take that stand, take the lead, and have these conversations uh, in the forefront on your podcast, on your show, and be willing to convict some of the people who out there are just foolish and just like clowns. And I commend you. We need more people like oh. you in this in this world, in this society. Oh, that means a lot, man. Because I remember when last time we were on, I asked, um, I, I asked uh, Monica. I said, you know, like it sounds dumb, but what can I do? What can I do? And her thing was, use your voice, use your platform, whatever platforms you got, use your voice, and 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 don't be afraid. And I think it's one thing to, and I also think it's one thing to have conversation with you guys, and then go back to who I have friends of all, I, I don't have black friends, white friends, I have friends. Some happen to be white, some happen to be Native American, some have, but when I'm having those white guy to white guy conversations, when somebody says something, if I'm not saying something bad or they, that I feel is wrong, like for instance, there was a dude in the, in the Safeway three weeks ago. He goes to, he, he's down the aisle and I see him and he's taking six boxes of Aunt Jemima pancake mix and putting it in his cart and I'm going, Damn, you must love that pancake mix. And he goes, no, 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 it's a collector's item. They're taking my Aunt Jemima away from me. This is an old white guy. And I'm like, I go, you're joking, right? And he goes, no, no, I'm good. Like, I grew up with her. I, and I'm thinking, okay, do I just leave it alone and walk away? And finally, I just, like, in the store, people are really, like, people are walking around. I'm going, sir. I go, Aunt Jemima is like a, a stereotype of a black mammy. It's like, it, 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 these are the people that we, these are people on the plantations back in the day. Like, you think that, that you grew up with that and you think it's okay? Like, come on. I mean, yeah. you know, like, like, these are the small little things we get in our neural cortex that we don't think it's a domino effect that makes us think about life and how we see other people, but this does. You know, you want to put Aunt Jemima's uh, now with a college graduate cap or she's head of a law firm and she's making pancakes too? Hello? Good. Come on, Mike, let him know. How did that conversation go? I'm curious. Oh, he just looked at me and he goes, you, he goes, I don't know how old you are, but um, he goes, but you can't do nothing anymore. And he just drove and he walked away real fast. And yeah. uh, he walked away real fast. And then I, I was like, uh, uh, a woman down the aisle kind of smiled at me. She didn't say anything. But I was like, you know, I, 
I wouldn't have done that five years ago. I think I would have kind of looked at him weird, but I wouldn't have done that. And, and now I feel empowered to say something because it's, you know, I've lost friends over this. I don't care. I lost money over things I said in, in the local market because, you know, there's a couple of stations won't have me on because they had business relationships with the uh, Washington football team. But at some point it's like you stand for something or you fall for everything. And, you know, and you got it with, you know, your daughter, I, um, when, when was your daughter's birthday, King? When's your daughter? March 6th. Oh, mine's January 27th. She's uh, two and a half. And, uh, like, you know, you, I look at them, and I look, you know, I'm sure you look at yours the same way, and your goddaughter, Monica, at some point, you know, you're going to be on that bed, and they're going to be around you going, oh, man, what, you know, it's, it's over. And you go, <laughs> at no point, nobody's going to wake up on their deathbed and go, damn, if I, if I just got to one more NBA Finals game. Damn it! No, you wanted to you wanted to be an example for the people that came uh, after you, and like people want to you want to be remembered for the right things, and um, and you guys are gonna be. I already know that. So as are you, Mike. But I gotta say, uh, yeah. I definitely thought King was about to commend you for being the white people that showed up at the black party. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, that too. <laughs> All right, I'll take that. Oh uh, man. All right. Well, when this freaking pandemic ends, it would be so good to get food with all of you. Well, King, where do you live now? I live in Dallas. Oh, you do? Okay, great. Um, do you know Do you know Cuban at all? No, I know people. Hey, on the listen, we're, we're getting King going in the media game. Like, I'm, all right. I'm, so I got it. So I got. I got to make that connection. There you go. We got to yeah. get him connected. Oh. We got to get him on the radio. We got to build this young empire. Oh, yeah. That was dope. <laughs> All right, friends, it's time to wrap this up. Thanks to my guests, Monica McNutt and King McClure, the co-hosts of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, and my colleagues at Pure Hoops Media. Thanks also to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, who put this together, and to our editor, Tom Phillip. Please check out other Pure Hoops Media shows. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams has a new show every Tuesday. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin has a new show every Wednesday. Monica and King are here each Thursday with Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. And of course, BJ Armstrong is back with Eric Newman on the Pure Hoops podcast, which drops every Friday. And I'm back next Monday with a brand new edition of the Mike Wise Show from Pure Hoops Media. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Listen up, everyone. We're not out of the woods with the COVID-19 pandemic, so please keep our medical professionals and essential workers in your thoughts. I know I say it every week, but I mean it. Continue to maintain social distancing, wash your hands, and wear that mask to protect yourselves and others. I don't even care if you're going to the RNC convention. And please keep working for social justice with our fellow citizens of all races and religions who are striving for a more inclusive and just society. If you like The Mike Wise Show, and you don't think I'm just a leftist social engineer, please subscribe, rate us, review us, and leave a five-star rating. It would mean a lot. I'll be back next week, and while we expect to be talking playoffs, these days, you just never know. See you then. Peace. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.